Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Back in the spring of 2002, I was really desperate for a job. I was looking for work. And I saw an ad in the paper that said uh, a caretaker was needed for an elderly man and that it required that you uh, lived with him out in a more rural area of where I'm from in Ashtabula County in Ohio. And being in my early 20s as I was, uh, I jumped at that. I said, well, what is this? Uh, I might as well respond. I got the job. Uh, I met the guy. Uh, he was about 80 years old or so. Um, his daughter had, uh, over the past, uh, over the years leading up to that, had noticed that her father's health was deteriorating. And I think the last straw was that the old man was found uh, in uh, one of those... Uh, one of those John Deere's, I can't remember what those, uh, what the specific vehicle was called, uh, near an overpass uh, with his two dogs uh, named Bonnie and Blackjack, uh, a black dog and a, and, a, and a beagle named Bonnie. And he was uh, burning money in a, uh, in a coffee can, I think it was, you know, like, in, like at midnight or something. Um, so he needed someone to be with him during the day. Uh, he had basically everything leveled out by the time I moved in, um, so he wasn't going to go running off like that, but he still needed someone to be with him. And being someone who always had a sort of hermit streak, I went for it. I went to live with him. He had a, a double wide in the woods uh, in Ashtabula County, and he had uh, a wonderful gravel road that was long enough that I was able to read a good deal of Gravity's Rainbow and I think East of Eden, walking up and down, up and down uh, that gravel road uh, every day because I happened to start the job on June 1st, 2002. I had an awful lot of time to myself. Um, I had just gotten out of a relationship a year earlier and I had also just found the largest group of friends that I ever had um, and that I've ever had since, um, whether in person or online or anything. Um, this was the largest group of people that I ever hung out with. And unless things change, that's probably going to remain the case. But um, it was wonderful living out there. It was wonderful moving in there in the summertime and being able to go outdoors. Uh, it was wonderful to be in my early 20s, to be bookish and nerdy, and to suddenly have all of these friends, and to be able to tell them, because I was also, uh, as always, 
still socially awkward at times, um, to tell them, well, I mean, I can't go anywhere during the week. I'm living with this guy out in the woods. So I became sort of the guru figure that people uh, came to visit. Um, I had the perfect excuse uh, to not go anywhere if I didn't want to. And they would come to visit me um, out in the woods. And the other thing that I started to do, and I set to it almost immediately, I think, was a study of English literature from the beginnings. And I think that was the first time I read Beowulf. It was the first time I actually bought a book by Seamus Heaney. I bought his translation of Beowulf. Um, I think I got myself uh, a Norton anthology and started at the beginning. But uh, one of the things I also did was I finally sat down with Richmond Lattimore's translation of Homer's Iliad. And uh, if you've never seen this book, I think you can probably go to uh, Google Print these days and just look for Richmond Lattimore Iliad or even on Amazon just to get a preview of it. Um, what he does with Homer is incredible and I've never had an experience close to it uh, since. And uh, what he does is he translates Homer in these huge long lines. I think he says they are um, non-regular six beat lines. So as long as it takes for him to get to six beats in the line, that's where he breaks the line. And there's such heft, such weight, such, uh, I want to say strength, but it's not even strength either. Um, there's just a sense, and, and, uh, and I had this confirmed when I sat down to talk with uh, someone who worked in a classics department once. I had the sense that this must be what reading Homer is like, or having heard Homer, what Homer must have been like to hear performing um, with these huge weighty lines that carry all of history, seemingly, uh, all of a culture on its back, but does so with um, pure storytelling, with actual stories and uh, just um, just wonderful stuff. And it struck me back then that by now it was the autumn of that year, the autumn of 2002. I said um, two things. I said to myself, America doesn't have anything like this. And the second thing was, I will write it. Now, uh, I did write it. And um, it has not had the effect that Homer did on his civilization. Um, if I had known what I know now, if I had known quite why America doesn't have a book like the Iliad or the Odyssey, if I understood why it was that poetry doesn't mean the same thing in America in the early 2000s, as it did to the early Greeks in the 8th century BC, um, maybe I wouldn't have done this, but I'm glad that I was ignorant. I'm glad that I had to discover it. I'm glad that I had to take the trip to do it. Because what I ended up doing, and we'll fast forward a bit here, is that um, I realized very soon that the best way to set an American version of something that could be like the Iliad and the Odyssey. The best time frame to set it would be in the American Civil War, so that by 
February of 2003, less than a year of living with the old man, I moved out and moved to Macon, Georgia. And the dumb joke that I had uh, when I was telling people that I was leaving, um, the dumb joke that I had, just to show you how ignorant I was, I told people that I was, uh, well, I, I, I was either honest, I'm moving there to write an epic poem about the Civil War, or I said something cute or just dumb, like I'm going there for the beaches. Um, I thought for a moment that, uh, that Georgia was landlocked, but of course it's not. And it turned out that actually I did go there for the beaches. Because one night, um, I believe it was Holy Saturday actually, in uh, April of 2003, only yeah, less than, less than two months of living in this apartment in Macon, Georgia, um, I realized that the poem begins in Savannah, that the main character, who is an Irish immigrant, um, is living in Savannah, and that's where he starts off his journey across the country. I knew right away that it would take this character, his name is Conrad, it took me a while to figure that out, but his name is Conrad. I realized that what he would do is travel through the south, then go through the north a bit, and then head off west. That was the basic idea, I think, pretty much from day one. Once I knew it was about the Civil War, uh, that was going to be the storyline. And I set off on Holy Saturday, the evening of Holy Saturday, into uh, Easter Sunday morning. And I stopped at a Walmart on the way out to buy a, a new CD back in the days when it was kind of a sacrament. It was a big deal to suddenly have a new CD of music to listen to in your car. And I drove to Savannah in the middle of the night. I think it took about three hours from Macon to Savannah. And I didn't, I'd never been to Savannah before. And I had no idea how I was going to get to the beach, but I knew that the poem would begin on the beach. But I just kept following the signs to, uh, it said Taibei, Taibei Island, T-Y-B-E-E. -E. Taibei Island, this way, I just follow the arrows to Taibei Island. And I just kept following the signs and I finally got to a parking lot where there was no more road left. There was only beach, but it was still three or four or so in the morning. And I sat there to myself with the tide out and I sat there until the tide came, started coming back in, until it was the morning. And that is indeed where the poem begins. And it took a while for me to even think that I was ready to start writing this poem. Uh, but when I did, uh, he's standing on the beach. And I didn't even stay in Georgia that long either. I ended up moving back to Ohio for a few months. And then in early 2004, um, I was accepted into the University of Pittsburgh's classics program. That's where I met the guy at the classics program, so I could talk to him about Homer. I was all set to enter the University of Pittsburgh uh, classics program in the honors, uh, uh, in the honors program um, in the fall of 2004, but it just so happened 
that in early June of 2004, only two years after I moved in with the old man, uh, June 1st, early June seems to be a very, very heavy time for me. Lots of meaningful things keep happening in early June. Um, I began emailing with the woman who ended up becoming my wife. And what happened was, is instead of entering the University of Pittsburgh uh, classics program, um, at the end of September of 2004, uh, I drove out to California to live with her. And what I brought with me, I think, were the first, or were drafts anyway, I think of the first three books of the poem. And by the time she and I left California in early, in April of 2007, so from October of 2004 to April of 2007, I had gotten up through book 22. By then I knew that the first 11 books would take care of the South. The second 11 books, books 12 through 22, would take care of the North and that books 23 through 33 would take him to the West. So I knew as we were leaving California to go live uh, in Brooklyn and stopping off in Ohio first to get married, I knew that I was saving the last 11 books to write in Brooklyn. And I believe, uh, so that would have been April of 2007, by Christmas of that year, I was able to read my wife the last part of the poem. But that is not all. That's only 2007. This book was not published until 2015. And what I did over the next four years, because we ended up moving to Pittsburgh in 2011, I would pick the poem up every now and then, once or twice or three times a year, and I would just tinker with it. I would uh, take what I had gathered from mythology and religious scripture in the past year and kind of kind of comb it all in. I should say that uh, the what I was doing with this poem, not only was I telling the story of this young man who travels the south, goes to the north, and then heads west in Civil War America, what I was doing was trying to replicate the way that religious scripture and mythology and folklore, uh, the way many, the way much of those stories have come down to us, that is, through borrowing, through sort of stealing and editing and taking what you want and adding your own and this and that. So that what the poem is, is uh, the story that I mentioned, but underneath it, the DNA of it, is just hundreds and hundreds of quotations from poets, from mythologies all over the world, and from the great religious scriptures of the world. And so you can't do that all of that all at once. It took four years uh, after finishing it to just keep weaving stuff in, weaving stuff in, weaving stuff in. And... So that by the time she and I moved to Pittsburgh in 2011, um, I knew that I had to put an end to this. 
um, at some point it will be overwritten, right? So at some point it will reach a point where uh, um, what I intended will no longer be there. It will just be overbaked, basically, overcooked. And so I, I had one last hurrah with notes and wove all this stuff in and finished it in, I believe, May of 2012. And I tried to send it around. I tried to get it published. Uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, um, in a moment, in the only moment in my life where I almost uh, got a heart attack was getting an email from Jonathan Galassi at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in the summer of 2012, asking to see the entire manuscript. And I guess the second time where I almost uh, died of a heart attack was a few months later when he emailed me back to reject it. And I sort of took it as a bit of permission when he told me, uh, you know, I've spent some time with your beautiful poem, but I don't really know what to do with it. And I don't really know of anyone else who would know what to do with it either. So I took that as a bit of permission to do it myself. Um, I should say that back in 2002, when all of this began, I was helping run a small press. So I knew generally what kind of sloppy self-publishing was like. And so I figured uh, after that, after 2012 and over the next two years, I figured maybe all of that self-publishing is leading up to me doing this book exactly how I want to and giving it to the world for the first time exactly as I envision it come what may. And that's what ended up happening on February 2nd, 2015 to the House of the Sun was published. And while it has not had the impact I wish it had over the last eight years almost, um, it is still there. And it is still the thing that if everything of mine were, were disappearing in a fire, this is the one thing that I would save. There's nothing I wrote before. There is nothing that I've written since that comes close to what it was like to write this book. I figured that what I can do tonight is just read a very small bit of that poem. Now, when the book was about to be released in 2015, um, I went down to the same room where I've recorded so many episodes of this podcast. And for four or five hours, I recorded my favorite parts of the poem. I have not, as far as I remember, I hadn't really had an opportunity to, I have not since then, I don't believe, read any of this out loud at all to anybody, even to myself. Um, I never listened to those recordings that I made. And I don't really think, aside from five or ten minutes here and there, that I've, ever, that I've even really looked at the poem since it was published. And so looking at it right now and giving this little bit of it to you, the listeners who perhaps really do want this, uh, will be a, a nice thrill, a nice, um, a nice unearthing for me. And what I want to read from is the last large section of the poem that I wrote. As I mentioned, by the end of it, I had uh, uh, just binders full, as Mitt Romney said, not of women, but of, uh, but of notes from mythology, of 
Um, by then I knew what happened in each of the books, so I knew that this quotation from Aeschylus, this quotation from Robinson Jeffers, this quotation from the Quran, this quotation from Ezekiel, this quotation from uh, the Kalevala or Dante or the Gospels, or whatever you can think of, I could plug those in. Th this might fit in book three, this might fit in book four, this might fit in book 32, this might fit in book 18, and then I would go to those and try and fit them in somehow or other. Um, it turned out that by the end of the book, I had uh, a great collection of quotations from scripture, from poetry, from mythology, dealing with the, with the hermit, with the ascetic, with the loner out, out on his own, with the, uh, the solitary miracle worker, all of these things. I had a great collection of them, of these little bits from all over the world, from all times, and they just never found a place in the poem. And I did not want to give them up. These are too good to give up and to just not include somewhere. And so I did one of those other things that religious scripture and mythology seems to do. And that is, if you're compiling something and you come across something else that's really good but doesn't fit, you still just sort of, you just tack it on at the end of something else or before something else. Uh, it'll stick out, maybe it'll look out of place. Um, it may not have anything to do with what came before it. It may not have anything to do with what came after it, you know, narratively, plot-wise. Um, but if it's good and you want to keep it, uh, you just shove it in there somewhere. And that is what I did. I put it uh, at the beginning of book 28. And I will just say that I remember lying in the bath in California, wondering what the hell it was going to be like when my hero, when Conrad, gets to the West, and when I realize that he is going to have to go to the underworld, how am I going to go from uh, a fairly realistic story of a, the son of Irish immigrants living in Georgia, uh, traveling through the South during the Civil War, going to the North, meeting Walt Whitman during the Civil War, how am I going to go from a fairly, fairly realistic story and end up having this person go into the underworld by book 31. How the hell do you do that? Um, it just so happened that it, it just took years of writing and it took uh, just surprise. And what I'm about to read will give a sense of that surprise and those years and what it was like to take a fairly realistic story and suddenly make a myth out of it, a sort of incantatory thing. So in book 28, he is in the West, and here it is. This is just, I took those little bits from all those sources that I mentioned and just turned them into bits of his journey. So here it is. And I went on to many places, and one was a fine field, where for weeks I was fed from the milk of a gray-white cow with green spots. And she made it known to me that she had been stolen and brought back and kidnapped over and over because of the abundance she gave. 
And wherever I was, I was lying in the south winds, I was lying in all the north winds. And I went on to many places. And leaving an offering once, I saw no water for the food, and so plunged my staff into the ground, and water sprang up there. And when I left that place, I left a well and a leafy tree. And I went on to many places. And another was a hilltop, where a fox befriended me. And in another, I walked with people who have not been born yet, or who have been born many times, and wait for another. And another was a hilltop where I thought if I were to die, my bones should be left here like a stag's, so that only my spirit would remain, as my body soared within a bird, or wandered with an animal, or sank into the earth. And I went on to many places. And another was a cave where the continuing wars made their way to me. And here the defeated brought the head of their own, or the victors brought the heads of their enemies, one in mourning and one in pride. And I embalmed the heads with herbs so they would not rot. And I spoke to them, and they answered, until they were done answering. And I buried each head as they deserved. And I went on to many places. And another was a cave where a stag came and warmed itself by my fire. And when hunters came around to ask where it was, I replied, God knows where it is. And they left as that light began to come from me again. Sometimes this character emanates light, by the way. And I went on to many places. And another was a cave I was forced to enter when no one wanted to hear what I had to say. He not only emanates light, but he sort of goes around uh, prophesying and uh, preaching at people, and sometimes they don't want to hear what he has to say. And I went on to many places, and another was the grass, and a watering hole where I joined the throng, and my heart delighted with the beasts in the water. And I dug wells that never existed, and caves, and I drank the water, and I chased the winds. And I embraced a man once that I came to, interrupting him. And he said he'd dreamt of a ladder and had mounted it up into the air so high that the heavens opened before him. And I'd reached the topmost rung, he said, when you woke me. And he told me what God had made him. He said his mother had been filled with him by the sun. And when he grew, she told him this. And he left before sunrise to go to that sun. And when he found him, his father taught him how to build a boat and a house, how to call up winds and how to calm the storms. He taught him wisdom and illness. He taught him poetry and the meaning of gold. And then he asked me what God had done to me. And I said I was the same, except that it wasn't my father, but my Emily. The character in my book is prompted by the death of his fiancée, whose name is Emily, to, to go on this journey in the first place. I said I was the same, except that it wasn't my father, it was my Emily, and he understood. And he said it was only because my face had been chilled by the inside of the cave that he was even able to look at me. And I went on to many places. And for much of it I sat in rags and mud, or wrapped in tree bark, 
but I never noticed till someone came by and mentioned it. And to be sure, fire is necessary for someone who's come in from the cold, but not for me. And to be sure, food and the rest are necessary for someone else who's come to the mountains, but not for me. And when I'm mistaken for someone I'm not, I reply, I'm not dead, I'm not back, but I'm still wandering. And I went on to many places. And one day I approached a blasted tree in the afternoon. And the tree had neither leaves nor fruit, but only rotten limbs. And a bird circled it many times, and finally alighted on a branch, and near its nest were all its young lay dead inside. And the bird stabbed her breast with her beak until the blood poured out. And when the blood fell out on her young, they revived, all as the mother sank among them, dying. And no sooner had I left this tree than I saw a husband and his sons dragging their wife and mother over the earth, burying their mother in the middle of it, who had died for them in ways they could not tell me. And weeping loudly, they went away. And I went on to many places, and in many of them I saw, whether on a hill or a mountain, up a tree or on a height, or simply before my own eyes, I saw people wrapped in clouds, I saw humans clothed in that white, and I watched them just wear the weather, and I watched them move gracefully with mist. And more than a few of these knew when a storm was to come, and more than a few of these were seated with smiles when lightning came. And the rain and lightning blasted the very spot where they stood, and water of spring was released there. And I went on to many places. And after time, I realized I no longer talked, I no longer prayed aloud, and I realized those words had passed from my lips to my heart, and I went on to many places. And in many of them, I saw men become deer, and deer become men. I saw men become lions, and lions become men. I saw eagles become men, and men become eagles. I saw calves become men, and men become calves. And I saw much more of this take place between men I did not recognize and animals I could not describe. And I went on to many places, and where did I go? A place to see a council book, a place to see the light that came from beside the sea, a place to hear of our place in the shadows, a place to see the dawn of life. And I went on to many places. And another was the burial of a friend. And his fellow said of him that his body died, but his soul was alive, that he will go somewhere to all directions, that he will never tire, never be hungry, never be thirsty. And though we weep because he dies, we still know better, because his spirit will always be happy. And I went on to many places, and another was a spot where I became amazed at my body. And I could not tell if my flesh was meat, or fish, or bird. And I could not tell where I had come from. And while I could recall my mother, certainly, there was another creator further back that I could feel breathing. And it seemed it was better to say I came from the fruit of fruits, 
from the flowers of the hill, from the blooms of the woods and trees, from the bloom of nettles, from the water and from the waves, and my mother too. And I knew why the birds came to me, and why should a bird fly from another? And I sang, Waters of the river, so much blood of mine, Fishes of the river, so much flesh of mine, Brushwood on the shore, so much bones of me, Grasses on the shore, my messy hair. And long I gazed, far out down the river, In a sweet languor, and it wasn't me who started from the city years ago. It wasn't me who argued and fought and killed. It wasn't me whose hands are now white roses. It wasn't me, my hair washed with stars. It wasn't me, my crude soul, all that's left. It wasn't me, stooping into my cave, my flesh and brain, a bird above the calmest waves. And I went on to many places, and others began to come, and I said they were welcome to spend a month or a season or a year with me, and those who did become a wind on the sea became a wave of the ocean, became a roar of the sea, became a powerful ox, became a hawk on a cliff, became a dewdrop in sunshine, became a boar to never approach, became a salmon in the pool, became a lake in a plain became a spear for the heart, became a shaper of fire for the heart. And I went on to many places, and in all of them, I never knew when in the year it was, how far in the week the days had been counted, and I lived amid these things, not needing information. And I went on to many places. And I built my cabin on the wind, and I carved my hut on the water and in the air, and a quiet place always found me. And I waded further out, and I waded to the far side of the next door, and a fiery headland's tip. I waded under a fiery cape's arm, and a fiery rapid's brink, upon a holy stream's bank. And I went on to many places. And as I went, I traveled along the treetops, if there wasn't a mountain, and on the tip of reeds. And no stalk or branch or blade ever broke beneath my step, and I was wind. And when I came down, I shared hazelnuts with the blackbird, and I shared water with the trout, and I shared apples with the stag. And I went on to many places, and Whenever it was a cave, those in the cold came when they saw my light, when they saw my place ablaze, and they were astounded, astounded to see that I warmed myself. And I went on to many places, and it seemed for thirty summers and as many winters, but it could have only been one. And I thought and I considered how to be and which way to live. And in my hideout and dwelling, I finally began to speak to those who came to me. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, 
at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.